to OR Insights, a podcast from Baxter Advanced Surgery that explores the big questions in surgery today. I'm your host, Amanda Shamper, and in each episode, we go into the operating room with some of our leading surgeons for a conversation about their practice and the experience they use to make critical operating decisions in real time. Today, we want to answer the question, how do you best manage type A aortic dissection? For that, we will hear from Dr. Namish Desai, the Director of Thoracic Aortic Surgery Research Program at Penn Medicine in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Dr. Chris Mehta, Associate Director of Thoracic Aortic Surgery Program at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. And now I'll turn things over to our moderator, Dr. Joseph Bavaria, Vice Chief of Cardiovascular Surgery at Penn Medicine. My name is Joseph Bavaria, uh, and these are my disclosures. I have received honoraria from Baxter. I solely and independently prepare the content of this presentation. The information in this presentation reflects my personal views and not necessarily those of Baxter. I'm Dr. Namash Desai, and the following are my disclosures. I received honoraria from Baxter. I solely and independently prepared the content of this presentation, and the information in this presentation reflects my personal views and not necessarily those of Baxter. My name is Dr. Chris Mehta, and I have the following disclosures. I have received honoraria from Baxter. I solely and independently prepared the content of this presentation. The information in this presentation reflects my personal views and not necessarily those of Baxter. To the panel, why uh, did we choose this topic? Type aortic dissection uh, has a bunch of unmet clinical needs, but why did we choose this, uh, this uh, topic? Dr. Dr. Mehta, Chris? Well, as you know, Joe, um, Type A aortic dissection uh, is a life-threatening aortic emergency with an operative mortality of somewhere between 18 and 25%. That means even with surgery, a lot of these patients are dying. And so, you know, we are, um, you know, still at a place where we have made a lot of progress over the last three decades, but um, there's still uh, more room for improvement to save lives. That's certainly true. Uh, uh, Nimesh, uh, Dr. Desai, Nimesh, we, we, there are some studies that are very interesting out there uh, regarding uh, some of the natural history and incidents of type A dissection. There was one out of Japan in an emergency room uh, where all deaths um, in the emergency room re- received a CT scan autopsy. Uh, and, um, and there was another study out of Japan, which is quite, quite a bit older, uh, looking at the natural history uh, which corroborated the IRAD data. Can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, the, the interesting thing about type A dissection is I don't think in the medical realm we've actually been able to uh, improve mortality. So uh, we still know that uh, at, you know, three to four weeks after a type A dissection repair, about 60% of the patients have died if they haven't had surgery. Uh, and that's a, a striking number, and that was... Uh, data from Japan as well as data from the IRAD uh, database. Uh, and uh, today we operate on almost everybody who has a type 8 dissection, but there are that small proportion of patients who have medical comorbidities that make it impossible uh, or, or very high risk uh, to do the surgery. Um, the interesting thing about how frequent type 8 dissection uh, occurs is I don't think we really understand the denominator. We don't really know how many people are having type A dissections out there. Anecdotally, as we've uh, seen better access to CT scans 
in the emergency rooms worldwide, we've seen a very dramatic increase in the amount of surgery being done for acute type A dissection. Uh, and interestingly, um, a study that was done in Japan uh, where they looked at people who were out of hospital arrest, who arrived in the emergency room uh, with vital signs absent and uh, were not resuscitatable, uh, that when those patients underwent a post-mortem CT scan, sort of a CT autopsy, that 8% of the out-of-hospital deaths in Japan were from acute type A dissection. Uh, and that may not be necessarily the same number everywhere around the world, but that's a huge number. Um, so uh, I think the unmet need for, uh, first of all, identifying who's at risk for type A dissection, and then, as uh, Chris was saying, treating type A dissection with low mortality are both uh, areas that are very intriguing, and I think the problem is more common than we really understand. So as far as actually treating the dissection itself, what are some of the unmet uh, challenges in the actual surgical procedure at this time? Chris? Right, so um, one area where we need improvement is in addressing um, malperfusion syndromes, and in particular, mesenteric malperfusion syndrome. Um, we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, for those patients who are inoperable, who maybe we would try um, an endovascular approach, there are a number of investigational options right now, but we're, we're not quite there, um, especially for the aortic root, ascending aorta, and um, endovascular approaches to the arch. Um, and then, you know, another area of unmet need is um, expeditious transport of patients from diagnosis to the operating room. Um, IRAD data suggests that uh, from the time of diagnosis to definitive surgical care is about 4.3 hours. And if you follow the historic mantra of 1% to 2% mortality per hour, those are a lot of people who are dying simply waiting to get definitive surgical care. Namesh, can you talk a little bit about the, some of the more recent classifications regarding timing of surgery as far as, you know, the, the intensity, the hyperacute phase, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, traditionally we separated dissections into acute and chronic, and uh, there was a little bit of discussion about where a dissection becomes chronic, but probably somewhere around three months. And I think from a prognostic understanding of what happens to the patient, uh, you know, there's different time points along the way that we uh, intervene, and, and, and particularly when we think about uh, patients who are maybe high risk for surgery or have uh, other issues that may need to be worked up prior to expeditious surgery, uh, understanding, uh, you know, the timing is really important. So there's uh, a, a, the, the current classification, the SVS, STS uh, uh, guidelines uh, for uh, type B dissection lay out a new uh, way of considering that, and that is that a hyperacute uh, type A dissection is within the first 24 hours. Uh, then there's an acute phase, uh, a subacute phase that starts about two weeks after the original presentation, uh, and then chronic uh, beginning at uh, 90 days. Right. So it's a little bit more sophisticated than the models we've had before. Um, Sometimes uh, we describe uh, acute to bakey one, especially acute to bakey one type uh, dissection, um, as a total aortic catastrophe. So um, when we talk about this, what does this actually mean, both acutely and chronically? What that actually means is that even with definitive surgical care, there is residual um, aortic dissection in the downstream aorta, and um, somewhere between 25 to 40 percent of patients even if they survive their uh, inciting event, 
may need future um, downstream interventions. And so uh, when I see patients uh, following a type A aortic repair, I tell them they're patients of mine for life because you need to follow those patients very aggressively with serial imaging uh, to assess the residual downstream aorta, um, in particular for aneurysmal degeneration of that chronic dissection. So Chris, what, um, what would you consider you know, the step-by-step -step approach to the standard operation right now or the classic operation uh, in a few generalized uh, steps? We'll get to more uh, detailed uh, aortic arch and aortic root uh, discussions a little bit later. Right, so as Namesh pointed out, the goal of immediate uh, aortic surgery is to mitigate those risks associated with an acute dissection. So um, acute severe aortic regurgitation, coronary malperfusion, free ascending aorta rupture, tamponade, cerebral or distal malperfusion. The goal of surgery is to mitigate those risks. And so if you consider a sort of standard operation, um, it would be an ascending aorta replacement with an open distal hemiarch anastomosis with an aortic valve resuspension. I think that as an operation, and in particular for the general cardiac surgeon, is going to mitigate most of those risks. Yes, I think that's going to mitigate probably 75% of those risks, which is addressing the aortic valve, addressing retrograde uh, perfusion into the coronaries that could cause a, uh, an MI, replacement of the proximal thoracic aorta and guaranteeing anti-grade blood flow into the cerebral vessel. I think it may be time, you know, uh, historically, where we're gonna start to uh, question uh, some of those uh, assumptions and that's gonna be the next decade. Uh, it's gonna be very exciting for uh, type A dissection repair. Let's, let's uh, go into a little bit of a different uh, uh, area. So sometimes uh, we have a situation where we may not want to operate on the patient. Like when should we not operate on the patient? It's kind of a strange concept in type aortic dissection because the, you know, the lethality of the, of the disease is so significant. But uh, Namesh, why don't you give us a general view of, of how you think about when not to operate? Right, so it, it almost seems um, uh, counterintuitive to think that you wouldn't operate on a type A dissection, but there are certainly patients who come to us with comorbidities or problems that uh, you know, doing surgery is probably not going to improve their survival. Uh, and the, the data from uh, the Cleveland Clinic and, and other centers shows that somewhere between 5 and 9% of patients uh, who get referred for uh, acute type A dissection uh, don't end up having surgery. Now, sometimes that's because they've already had catastrophic organ injuries. So they've had multiple cardiac arrests, had uh, severe cerebral malperfusion with a large uh, stroke, uh, or have had... Uh, distal malperfusion with rigor mortis or dead gut, where realistically the ability for us to, to actually have a patient survive after operating on them through that is really low uh, or almost zero sometimes. Uh, and then there's the other group in whom we delay, and I think that group uh, is, is a little bit more nuanced and complicated. So there are certain situations where we may delay to allow uh, blood thinners to wash out, um, especially in redo situations. Uh, and then there's also that group of people who uh, we need to assess their neurologic status or do peripheral interventions first to relieve malperfusions. I think those are the two different groups. Uh, just quickly, tell us what the approach is for, for uh, GI malperfusion, especially SMA malperfusion. Uh, and maybe we get both of you real quick. Uh, kind of an intellectual war going on between dissection surgeons across the world right now regarding this. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a good question and uh, an area of controversy, as you pointed out. 
I think the first step is um, making sure this is a multidisciplinary conversation. Get your vascular surgeons involved as well and, and really think about what is, um, what do you suspect will ultimately kill the patient? And if it's mesenteric malperfusion syndrome, um, so for example, if you have a um, more than expected uh, uh, lactate elevation, uh, if the patient has hematochesia, if you're seeing pneumatosis on the, on the CT scan, um, those are patients where it may be reasonable to perform an upfront um, percutaneous intervention, meaning endovascular fenestration plus minus branch stenting, uh, in order to address that malperfusion syndrome first before mm-hmm. um, considering proximal aortic repair. Uh, so what are your thoughts regarding the opposite view, which is that uh, most, maybe up to 70 to 75% of all distal malperfusions will melt away by taking out the primary tear site of a type A dissection. Namesh? Yeah, we're, we're not good at knowing how bad the malperfusion is in the mesentery. You know, and that's, I think that's problem number one is, uh, you know, if, you, if you're waiting for a lactate to go up, you're, you know, you've kind of lost the chance to actually rescue the problem probably. So uh, I still think in our experience that ex- expeditious repair uh, proximally is, is the gold standard most of the time. Um, I think that even in patients who present with belly pain uh, and, uh, you know, have a really compressed true lumen proximally that uh, when you have a big entry tear in the ascending aorta that you can fix that and you can resolve that malperfusion fairly quickly. Uh, The ones I worry about are ones where you see sort of static malperfusion in the mesentery where uh, even if you fix it, um, that hematoma that's formed in the uh, wall of the SMA and the celiac and, or, or both um, uh, is not going to get better when you do the operation. Those are ones I definitely would prefer to treat endovascularly first. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, if you see a static malperfusion <clears throat> with, with a thrombosis of the SMA, that's a, uh, that's a whole different uh, animal than, than a uh, dynamic malperfusion of the SMA, which uh, could be corrected immediately, even even to ex- actually with with anti-grade perfusion of the aorta at the very beginning uh, can melt away even before you do your before you do dissection repair. Very interesting uh, uh, area to be honest with you. And talk about the actual prosecution uh, of these operations uh, uh, in general. There's no perfect cannulation site in type A dissection. Uh, so Chris, uh, before we get into some of the more arcane and, and not more arcane, more uh, some of the more recent ones, what are what's your approach and what are, how do you think about cannulation in acute type A dissection? Right, so I think the first branch point of the algorithm is are they stable or unstable? Uh, in stable patients, I think central direct aortic cannulation or uh, right axillary artery cannulation are both reasonable approaches. I personally like a direct aortic cannulation because I think you get a patient on cardiopulmonary bypass more expeditiously. I might add that the uh, recent uh, gui- guidelines gave, axil- I mean, gave axillary and direct aortic both one A's. Right, yeah. Right. Um, but I think um, not everybody's experienced in uh, direct aortic cannulation techniques. And I think uh, axillary artery cannulation is also a very safe and reasonable approach for the stable patient. Mm-hmm. Now, for the unstable patient, I think uh, going to an axillary approach um, is wasting a little bit of time. And so in those patients, I preferentially will go uh, central aortic. Now, some uh, surgeons will also do a, a femoral artery cannulation. And, you know, I, I think in the patient that's in extremis, you have to do what you have to do. Uh, but with retrograde arterial flow, I really worry about 
how that dynamic dissection flap is going to change. And frankly, you may be making um, different vascular beds more ischemic, causing more malperfusion with femoral cannulation. So if possible, I try to avoid it. Yeah, and the guidelines just uh, said that that's a B indication, femoral, but it's still an indication, okay? Right. Um, Namesh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your particular approach to axillary cannulation versus central aortic cannulation, the advantages of, of, of whichever one you want, you want to talk about. So the uh, so I, I generally follow the algorithm that Chris said, which is that we look at the stability of the patient. That's really step one. Is the patient unstable? Open their chest up, drain the effusion, and then you can figure it out. You don't actually have to do ascending cannulation at that point if you if you're not comfortable with it, but you should get that effusion drained before you go any further. Um, the, uh, typically, I use a, uh, direct ascending cannulation using a Seldinger technique. Um, we uh, basically advance a needle uh, into the, uh, don't, don't place a purse string on the aorta first because uh, it'll bleed if it's, if it's in the false lumen. Um, uh, basically, you put a needle into the aorta. Uh, this is really guide, where you put the needle is very much guided by your CT scan. Uh, I don't necessarily try to get into the true lumen directly. The only way to do that usually is to be like right on the underside along the RPA, uh, where the PA is. Typically what I'll do is advance that needle uh, until you hit the through the false lumen, uh, until you hit the septum between the two lumens and the flow will stop. And then you advance it just a little bit further and you'll get pulsatile flow again. Uh, and you have your echocardiographer looking at the descending aorta while you're doing this uh, and advance a, a very soft wire, like the wire that comes with the femoral cannulation kits, um, over that uh, into the true lumen, uh, and then you look on echo to make sure that it's in the true lumen. Uh, and then once you have it in there, then you dilate it up uh, and put your cannula in, and then you're ready to go. The interesting thing about, you know, we're talking about central cannulation and malperfusion is we've uh, been looking at putting NIRS monitors on people's feet after they, uh, if they come in with uh, limb malperfusion. And when we go on centrally, the limb malperfusion goes away almost immediately based on the NIRS in the feet. So it's a right. very effective tool. Uh, in reference to axillary cannulation, uh, typically I do that when I'm... Uh, the patient's fully stable and I'm planning to do an advanced arch operation, I find uh, doing the anterior cerebral perfusion via the axe is a little bit more convenient. Um, uh, and I don't worry about the innominate if it's dissected. As long as it doesn't look like there's an actual tear in it, um, it's completely safe to do axillary cannulation. You should not do axillary cannulation if the axillary itself is dissected right. um, because that's very challenging. Uh, and then finally, the, the the issue with femoral cannulation, I think there are a few situations where it's the only way you can do it. Um, and uh, and they're really rare. I, you know, maybe one every few years we, we do these days in femorally. In fact, if you look at how this has progressed over time, 20 years ago, it was, you know, 80% plus femoral. And now in our practice, it's probably 5%. It's almost all central and some axillary. So you guys are both on the um, STS um, aortic task force uh, for the uh, STS database. So Namesh, uh, as the co-chair of that task force, what are the, do you have any idea what the practice patterns in the United States are regarding cannulation? Right, so um, it's, uh, we, don't, we don't have any published data on it yet, but anecdotally, uh, it, it seems like the uh, axillary is actually the most common way that uh, people go and bypass for aortic dissection followed by femoral, followed by ascending. 
But I think there's a trend, certainly, that ascending is becoming much more common. Uh, it also gives you certain options. Um, uh, if you are malperfused, uh, you know, you can always, uh, if you go on femoral and you, and you think you're malperfused, you can always cannulate the ascending as well. So it's a, it's a skill I think you have to have. Whether you want to use that usually or not, it's a skill you actually have to have. So I would like to ask you guys these three questions. Uh, when do you do a classic hemi-arch? Uh, when do you do an elephant trunk type of operation, whether it's an anti-grade stent or uh, a, class, a true elephant trunk? Uh, and when would you do uh, something in between maybe, like a zone two arch or a zone one arch uh, with, uh, with or without uh, sequential uh, T-var? So let's start uh, uh, with you. When, what, are, what are your thoughts regarding uh, these three areas, especially, say, when would you do a hemi-arch in these cases? Right. So um, I think most patients can be managed with a hemi-arch anastomosis, especially if they do not have um, any tears within the aortic arch, um, especially if they're older. Um, I tend to do a more extended aortic arch resection for patients who either have really extensive tear into the aortic arch, separate entry tears in the aortic arch, an aneurysmal aortic arch, um, pretty severe cerebral malperfusion uh, in the carotid and nominate arteries, um, or if there is a, 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 a tear just distal to the, to the aortic arch as well. And as a sort of relative indication, I would include younger patients, patients who have uh, either Marfan syndrome or connective tissue disorders, um, who, you know, you suspect may need future downstream interventions. If you're aggressive up front, you may be able to mitigate, you know, w what they need. Um, and then with respect to your last question, um, you know, I think uh, elephant trunk is an appropriate, um, an appropriate adjunct um, in all those scenarios to sort of favorably remodel the downstream aorta and try to reduce um, the, the uh, potential problems that somebody may, may have uh, in the future. Um, so when I do an aortic arch replacement, I will very typically do um, a frozen elephant trunk. Um, you get the radial force of that stent graft. Uh, I, I don't hardly ever use a classic elephant trunk because you just simply don't have that radial, um, uh, that radial uh, force on it. And then um, for something in between a hemi-arch versus uh, an arch um, elephant trunk procedure, um, it's, it's patients who maybe have um, cerebral malperfusion of their carotid and their anominate, um, but in whom uh, the anatomy may be too ch challenging to um, try to do something with the subclavian artery or to put a frozen elephant trunk down. And in those situations, I think a zone two arch um, is a reasonable um, thing to do as well. So Namesh, you've, uh, you know, you've been, uh, been advocating and developing the uh, a, a, an algorithm, I, su I should say, uh, regarding when to do uh, a hemi-arch, when to do a zone two arch, and when to do uh, frozen elephant trunks. And I think this is gonna become very important uh, for uh, the, especially the North American community uh, because of the recent uh, FDA approvals. This is gonna be a very important part uh, uh, and discussion of this segment uh, on hemovision. What are your thoughts and how do you think about it? Uh, yeah, so the first thing I think about is what is the problem the patient has? And, and we have to fix that problem. So if the patient has a large tear in their arch, uh, I don't think it's reasonable to leave it, um, even if they're older, um, because you haven't really fixed 
uh, you know, the primary problem that they came with. You've mitigated certain risks, but you've left them with others that are very significant. So um, that's sort of uh, that's sort of first step in my approach to it is, you know, what do I actually have to do right now to make sure this person is okay? Uh, and if a person has arch tears or has uh, very severely dissected head vessels, um, hemiarch is rarely going to actually open all of that up well. Uh, so uh, in those kind of patients, I tend to be more aggressive. So that's sort of the early situation. If they're malperfused severely distally, again, I want TVAR options for them. Uh, so we're going to do more in the arch than just a straightforward hemiarch. So that's step number one. Step number two is thinking about that patient over the long term and what residual disease you're leaving them with and how much surgery they can tolerate potentially to mitigate the risk of downstream problems. Uh, our data and data from other places suggest that uh, somewhere between 20 and 40% of patients eventually need further intervention on their distal aorta. Um, and importantly, the survival rate at 10 years of type A dissection is so low that we don't really know what the rate of true aortic failure is uh, that either led to rupture or reintervention in these patients. We don't have great long-term uh, uh, series on what happens to these patients uh, over uh, an extended period of time. So if a patient is going to live more than 10 years, they have complex arch dissection, or they have dissected head vessels, I'm almost always doing a more advanced arch operation. Uh, and then in terms of choosing the arch operation that you do, uh, I think, first of all, choose whatever you're most comfortable with. Um, I've always thought that the zone two arch, which is where you're sewing between the carotid and the innominate and not placing a stent at the time, is a very effective way of giving you options for the future, um, but also not doing a really complicated operation up front. And we can do that with really short circuit rest times typically. Um, the zone two is really the smallest and most circular part of the aorta. So when you're doing an arch operation, it's actually an easier anastomosis. Um, and you know, you've really given yourself definitive options for the future, which I think is really important as well. So in a patient who I think is going to live more than 10 years, I still think that, and has complex, you know, dissection distally, that is probably the best operation. So the entire concept, uh, regarding extending at the arch. Um, and going maybe more uh, than a hemiarch or an open distal anastomosis really stems from the from more recent work that again acute debakey type one dissection is a total aortic catastrophe, uh, especially when one talks about you know long term. Uh, and um, so the idea is is that uh, we want to mitigate or some, somehow make it easier. Uh, to address and maybe even prevent the the development of chronicity uh, in uh, in the residual aorta. So if I was to say that there's going to be kind of a an arch civil war, so to speak, uh, between uh, two big concepts. The big concept being a zone two arch or zone one arch that then has sequential or later placement of stent graft. Um, now that we have arch branch endografts versus uh, upfront application of frozen elephant trunk. Where do you think that stands? I'll ask both of you first. But Chris first. Yeah, it, it's a good question. And, you know, as I had alluded to, I think there's um, opportunities for, for both of those operations, depending on the clinical scenario. 
Um, I do think doing an upfront frozen elephant trunk um, gives you uh, more options. It facilitates a second stage operation, whether that's endovascular or open. Um, now, with the advent of arch branch devices, as, as you pointed out, um, you know, we have more options for a, a zone two operation um, where you could put an arch branch device um, into the left subclavian artery. Does the frozen elephant trunk under these conditions uh, for stable patients like that, does it, is it ha does it have some disadvantages? Does it have some increased complication rates? Um, if you use a long enough stent graft, uh, you potentially increase the risk of spinal cord ischemia, which is why uh, I very typically use a 10 centimeter short graft. Um, so that's one thing that people need to be cognizant about. And when you do your zone two arches, uh, Nimesh, uh, how do you design your proximal landing zone for your sequential T-var, branched arch T-var? So typically I'll leave uh, three and a half to four centimeters of graft um, between the anastomosis and where the carotid comes off so that we have a good landing zone there. Um, and, and just getting back to what Chris was saying about frozen elephant, frozen elephant trunk, e even in that place, like I think we have moved much more towards sewing in zone two mm -hmm. uh, than, than an actual zone three anastomosis where there's much more risk of recurrent radial nerve injury. And it, it's just, it feels so far away when you're doing it in some people. Yeah, absolutely. That's how I do my frozen is that zone two. So, you know, both of you uh, have heard uh, me say this, that uh, um, if you lose your, uh, your arch anastomosis, uh, this is for technical, technical cardiac surgery, uh, you really have a mess on your hands. Uh, and uh, most probably the patient's not going to do very well. So uh, this gets into, like you were talking about, uh, Chris, regarding the suture lines and how fine they are, and they're going through, you know, what I call baklava, you know, layered aorta. What... Uh, uh, I, I tend to use uh, surgical you know, hemostatic adjuncts um, like Prevalique or something like that in this particular instance. What is your approach to, uh, uh, to using, uh, you know, kind of control of bleeding in this situation? Right. Um, I think when doing extended arch resections, uh, that's where you're really going to run into trouble with trying to address bleeding once you're off pump. Uh, and so uh, I, too, will use, um, you know, hemostatic sealant agents. Um, especially around um, my distal zone two anastomosis and an extended arch, let's say. Namesh? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the uh, you know bleeding is is obviously the the part of aortic surgery that's always difficult. And and uh, as we talked about earlier, there are more and more patients coming in on blood thinners and things. I think this problem has become uh, even even you know worse uh, as time has gone by and. Uh, using hemostatic agents at the distal suture line, I think, is really important. I, uh, you know, following your lead, uh, almost never place felt on the outside of the aorta. I think that, you know, for those of us who do redo aortic surgery all the time, felt destroys everything around it, and uh, or it's, it sort of socks into it, and you can't separate the planes anymore. But even while you're in the surgery, uh, you know, Teflon felt just disguises the bleeding that's happening underneath, and, and it's actually a little bit harder to fix it sometimes because of that. So, right. um, you know, we've always tried to use Teflon felt on the inside, the media, uh, the the media, media. because it, because dissection is a medial problem. And the reason, so I always tell, ask the fellows, I'm sure Chris remembers, um, you know, why why are we here today? Because the person's media failed, right? So if we can do something to reconstruct their media. 
uh, then that's probably the best thing we can do for them. And then use hemostatic agents on the needle holes. You don't need mechanical support on the adventitia. The reason the patient got to you is because their adventitia actually held together. Right. Great. Well, okay, so we talked about the aortic arch, which is, I think, you know, maybe the biggest surgical imperative regarding uh, type A dissection repair and maybe future results, uh, long-term, mid, mid, mid and long-term results. But also let's kind of now go to the aortic root because the aortic root's actually really important too. Uh, and not only that, uh, but we have also new operation, newer operations than we had before, uh, such as the, the reimplantation procedure and the, uh, the David procedure uh, to add to our armamentarium for selected cases. So with that, um, where, what is your approach, uh, Namesh, for the, how do you approach the aortic root in a type A aortic dissection? What's going through your head about what's, what's important and how you're going to, to, to select the particular root procedure that you're gonna select? Right, so I think we start off with looking at three choices, right? We can uh, do a resuspension uh, and uh, what, what we call a neomedia repair, where we play, again, where we place the felt on the inside. Uh, so we resuspend the valve and sew an anastomosis uh, at the sine tubular junction. Um, we can do that operation and replace the aortic valve, uh, and we can, or we can just do a root replacement, whether that's a valve-sparing root uh, or a, uh, a bentol. Uh, and the decision-making really comes from, first of all, is there a tear in the root? Uh, if there's a tear in the root, that has so to make be a dis- make, a, make a distinction between a tear and a dissection at mm-hmm. the root, because I'm not sure that that nuance is completely understood. Right, there, that, that you're seeing an actual hole in the intima, a rip in the intima below the sinotubular junction, um, and uh, versus just seeing flap, right? Flap you can put back together again, uh, but an actual tear where there's a rip, a hole in the intima, uh, is something you can't put back together again. Uh, and so uh, if there is an actual tear, we have to replace the root. We have to replace the sinuses. And the sinuses, again, can be replaced without replacing the valve or a valve-sparing root, David operation, uh, or we can just do a bentol. Uh, and doing a David operation in an acutely dissected patient uh, who may have come in unstable and malperfused is something uh, typically I only take on when the patient is very young. Uh, and I think that the, the risk of valve-related complications over their lifetime is significant. Uh, and so the connective tissue disorder patients, the Marfans, the low states, uh, and other you know, young, and I, I would say under 50 uh, patients, I think are, are, can be good, good candidates for doing a David. Um, if not, and there is a problem at the root, so the root's either more than five centimeters uh, or has a tear in it, then I'm replacing it. Right. Um, Chris, uh, the, the bottom line is when you look at uh, patients who come in at, with a type aortic dissection, especially with a hypertension as their, as their primary uh, risk factor, uh, most of those patients will have a normal aortic valve the minute before their dissection. In some of these uh, series, it's somewhere between 70 and 75% of all patients will, will have not had significant aortic valve dysfunction prior to the, their type aortic dissection. So how do you take that data and how do, how do you apply that to your particular um, way of approaching the aortic root? Yeah, so um, first of all, I would say I agree with all the indications that uh, Namesh mentioned for aortic root replacement. 
Um, aortic valve resuspension is going to address the vast majority of um, insufficient aortic valves um, because that leaflet is prolapsing because the commissure is detached from the aortic wall. So if you re-implant that and, and use a neomedia um, felt to sort of reinforce that aortic root, you should provide competence to that aortic valve. Now, if there's a question of, um, you know, intrinsic valve disease uh, in somebody who maybe is older and has some degree of stenosis or regurgitation, uh, you know, I think it's reasonable to replace that aortic valve. Um, but again, in the vast majority of patients, I don't think you need to. Right. Uh, Namesh, regarding the idea of the felt neomedia and the root re kind of root reconstruction from and preserving the root, shall we say, with resuspension of the aortic valve, what is the data about how well that that uh, you know that that works? How how long does it last? There have been significant uh, corroboration uh, studies from across the globe uh, regarding uh, root preservation uh, in that regard that have been pretty good. What are your, what are your thoughts and what do you, what's your read of the data? Yeah, so um, in root preservation surgery, I think. Uh, it, it, uh, doing something to, to buttress the media layer is really important. Uh, and that's been our approach um, for more, probably about 20 years now. Uh, and uh, in our experience, um, the uh, freedom from uh, having a re-intervention at the root level in patients whom, whom we've done a neomedia repair uh, is you know, 85 to 90% at 10 years. So. Uh, it's, you know, I think the long-term results of it are actually very good. Um, and when you consider the alternative, which is to place a prosthetic device in there um, that, you know, with risks of endocarditis, uh, uh, bleeding complications from anticoagulation or uh, structural valve deterioration, that those results really do hold up very well. Uh, Namesh, uh, you've done a fair number of, of uh, David operations in type A dissection. You already uh, alluded to the to the to the fact that uh, you have a certain kind of patient characteristic where you're going to go do that extra extra work. Um, can you uh, describe a couple of the pearls, technical pearls that that uh, the audience may want to know about regarding application of the D5 reimplantation operation in type A dissection? Right. So. First of all, I'll say that if you don't do a lot of David operations, a type A can be a little bit difficult to start on. <laughs> um, one of the, the reasons for that is that, uh, you know, when we do a David operation on someone, it starts off with a really good echo valve analysis. And in an acute type A dissection, that's the one thing you can't do, is you don't really have a chance to analyze the valve because you're dealing with aortic insufficiency related to uh, a tearing of the commissure uh, off of the leaflet. So uh, unfortunately, when you start the operation, you don't know if your leaflets are gonna be okay or not until you actually open up the root. So it does increase the difficulty level a little bit. Um, once you have the, uh, once you've gotten on bypass safely uh, and you've placed your cross clamp and you've opened it up uh, and you have the decompressed aorta to look at, then you can actually do the valve analysis. And I'll start off by just putting the three resuspension sutures in, plugged sutures, um, and, and just pulling up on everything and looking at the root at that point. You know, and, and then going through the algorithm. First of all, is the root suitable to spare, right? So, or rather, is the root, first of all, is the root suitable to spare? And if not, can I spare the valve and, and just replace the sinuses? 
Uh, and that is a complicated uh, thing to figure out because you, you've lost a lot of your normal anatomic landmarks. Um, typically, I will do David operation only when the leaflets look completely normal. Uh, and so we take a series of measurements. We measure the geometric height of the leaflet. We look at the effective height of the leaflets when everything's been resuspended. Um, and some of that is to plan the size of the graft, but actually a lot of it is just to make sure the leaflets are gonna be okay. Because again, I don't know what the problem was or why the valve was leaking so much at the beginning of the surgery from a leaflet perspective. If I have good enough leaflets and the patient is a good candidate, so they're young, I think they're gonna live a long time, then we proceed with the David. Um, after, we get, after we make that decision, I think a lot of the operation is very similar to a typical David operation, just understanding that uh, hematoma around the left main uh, can be a little bit difficult to deal with. Um, a dissected coronary button uh, can be difficult to deal with, and we have tricks to deal with those things. Um, uh, but uh, I still try to stick to the principles of doing a proper David operation. So a deep root dissection. Uh, and um, um, placing the subannular sutures, uh, I sometimes don't use as many in a David because in a uh, dissection because the annulus may not be that enlarged. Um, uh, and then proceeding with the operation in the usual way that we do it. Um, if the tear actually goes right down to the leaflet insertion, which I've seen uh, in a couple of times, I have actually shied away from doing a David in that situation because I'm not totally comfortable that the suture line, uh, the superangular suture line is gonna be uh, robust enough. Mm -hmm. So Chris, you uh, mentioned earlier on that uh, when you talk to patients um, that you've got a situation uh, where you consider them kind of your friends for life, as I used to say, or, or <laughs> patient of yours for life. Uh, what is the uh, approach in your aorta clinic? I'm sure you have an aorta clinic, you can talk about that maybe but uh, regarding hypertension management and uh, just kind of how you approach a long-term management of somebody who's had an acute type A dissection. Yeah, and, and this is where I think um, aortic centers of expertise really come in handy. If you have a program that commonly sees these patients and knows how to manage them, it really goes a long way in terms of um, making sure these patients, you can mitigate any future re-interventions they may need. Um, catch catch any problems so that you can act upon those um, and improve follow-up of patients. Um, so uh, in terms of imaging, um, we try to get a dismissal um, CT scan if we can. And then within the first year, um, we'll have short interval follow-ups, let's say um, three to six months, uh, and then another scan at one year. Um, if things are stable after that, we'll get annual scans. Um, with respect to um, blood pressure management, um, we actually have uh, a dedicated cardiologist who sees all these patients so that there's consistency. You may not necessarily be able to do that, but the point is consistency here. Um, and you really need to make sure that blood pressure is well controlled, especially in that first year where there's a lot of remodeling happen, happening in the downstream um, aorta. So, um, you know, again, I think uh, dedicated programs to these uh, management of these patients is really key. Yeah, it seems that we have a situation where um, you know, these patients are so complicated uh, that most cardiologists, except for maybe you're lucky you have, you have somebody, uh, this is uh, not, you know, not in their wheelhouse. This is not something they see every day. 
so the aorta clinic uh, is, is really uh, important, and especially if it can be multidisciplinary. So Namesh, what are your thoughts about the use of, uh, in the aorta clinic and in the long-term management and, and assessment of these patients, you know, how do you look at the residual aorta, whether or not you're gonna be using a TVAR extension uh, or TVAR placement and how you're gonna deal with the distal aorta? Yeah, so in terms of follow-up, um, just as Chris was mentioning, I, you know, we, it's, a, it's a really diligent follow-up with these patients. In the end, no one will understand what's happened to this patient or what will happen to them uh, more than you will as their cardiac aortic surgeon. And uh, so we typically will follow the patients with a scan uh, in the hospital if, if their kidneys are good enough um, at a month and then somewhere between three and six months and then annually thereafter, depending on what we find. Um, and um, longitudinally, uh, the only way uh, to give a person who's had a Jabeki-1 dissection and has residual disease, to the only way to try and get them back to normal life expectancy is to have immaculate management of their aorta. Uh, and that's something that we aim for, um, but it's, uh, you know, maintaining that relationship for 10, 12, 15 years can be difficult, but you have to do it. Well, thank you. Um, it seems to me that uh, uh, one of the things that I think patients um, really enjoy hearing from us, um, the surgeons who have fixed their aortas, uh, is that uh, we'll be friends for life. Uh, and uh, I think you can't imagine how relieved they are to hear those words. Uh, and I'd like to make sure that our constituency out here listening to this uh, really uh, understands that as well. Thank you again to Dr. Desai, Dr. Mehta, and Dr. Bavaria. And for those of you listening, if you'd like more information on Baxter's Advanced Surgery products, please visit the website advancedsurgery.baxter.com or contact your local sales professional. Mm-hmm.